0: Well, Am I on? Okay, well, good morning, church. Good morning. It's great to be here this morning and to share the Word of God with you. Um, When Pastor Mark asked me to preach um, before Christmas, I thought, what am I going to talk about? And I've been taking a 36-week discipleship course on Tuesday mornings through the Freedom in Christ Ministries. And I started in September. I'm going to finish the end of May. And I thought, what a better opportunity to share the principles that I have been learning in this course with you guys. And it's really hard to make a sermon, um, a 30-minute sermon of an eight-month course, but I'll do my best. I'm just going to uh, go over the highlights, some of the foundations. If you have more questions about the principle of this ministry or this message this morning, please uh, connect with my wife, Charlene, who's deeply involved in this ministry, or myself after. We'd be glad to share it with you. So the title of this message is, Who Am I? Who am I? Who are you? If someone was to ask me who I am, I might answer, well, my name is Roderick Kyle the III. I'm not joking. That, that is my name. And I was born to Roderick Scott Monroe II and Shirley Louise Monroe. And they're watching online. Just a huge shout-out to them. And and uh, you might say, well, that's great. I know your name, but you know, are you married? Or are you single? And I say, well, yeah, I've been married for um, 21 years to my beautiful wife Charlene. I have two beautiful children, Kashen and Ivory. And they're like, "Well, that's great." But and then and then they'll say, "Well, where do you work?" And I've often said, "Well, I work at Northgate Baptist Church." And this is where it gets kind of weird. Is that over my nine years here, I've had many, many different kinds of tables thrown at me. And I just wanted to thought it'd be fun to share some of those things with you. I have been called. Uh, children's Coordinator. I've been called Children's Ministry Director, which is my previous job description. I've, I've been called Commander, which is uh, the IWANA leader. I've also been called, and this is one of my favorites, Junior Pastor. <laughs> no, don't rely. I'm not, and I, I, don't know, I don't know where that comes from. I've been called Pastor. And most recently, I've been called Reverend. And those of you that know me well know that I am not about titles. But these are some of the things that people have called me. But you know what? All of these things are temporal. All of them. It doesn't define who I really am. Where do we get our identity from? What is God's plan for us? And who are we that God's good plan for us, God's good plan for us, but the enemy does not. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John 10.10, and that's going to be our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. John 10.10 says, the thief comes to only steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full." And I want us to emphasize this, uh, this, the last part of this passage, that I, have, that I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. You see, Jesus came not only to save our souls and give us eternal life when we die, but he has come to give us life here on earth as well, an abundant life. That's what he promises us. Let's pray together. Gracious God, I thank you for who you are, Lord. God, I thank you so much, Lord, that um, you died on the cross for our sins. But you not only died for us to have eternal life, Lord, but but you came to give us life and give it to the full, Lord. And as we explore this more in this uh, message this morning, God, I ask that your spirit would speak to the people here in this church. Uh, and who are aligned. And God, I ask that your spirit would speak through me as well too, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a question for you guys. I'm going to take a quick survey, and I want to know how many of you would identify yourselves as a sinner or a saint. And I'm not trying to put anyone on the spot, but put up your hand if you'd say, you know what, I, I feel like I'm more of a sinner. Put up your hand. Oh, okay. Now, how many of you would identify yourself as a saint? Put up your hand. Wow. I know some of you are thinking, "My husband's no saint." Why are you know, he's putting up your hand, right? right? So, anyways, you know that um, that I believe the church has it wrong. When when they when we identify when the church identifies God's people as sinners, it's often used. In past tense, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or the term sinners is often used in the Bible to uh, describe non-Christian people. Yes, there's a few passages um, that talk about sinner in present tense, but the majority of them is past tense. The New Testament often refers to God's people as saints. Now, I understand that the word saint that doesn't mean that we're perfect but it means to be set apart for God's people to do his will. So we are meant to walk in harmony with God as we learn in our opening verse Jesus has come to give us life and give us life to the fullest. So what happened? What happened to that promise? that we're supposed to have life to the fullest. Well, in order for us to uh, answer this question, we have to look back to Genesis chapter 3. Here we all know the story of how the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, and through end they sinned by eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge. But I want you to look at verses 8 and 9. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And, they, and he hid from them, from the Lord, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? You notice that God was walking in the garden, and this alludes that he, this wasn't the first time that he was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve knew God's presence God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve on a regular basis. They were in harmony with God. You see, their spirit was connected with God's spirit before they sinned. However, God, and then when they sinned, they were separated from God. However, God is in the business of redemption. Amen? Why did Jesus come? Most people would say, he came to forgive my sins. Yes, this is true. But Jesus came to give us life. What did Adam lose? He lost life. What did Jesus come to give us? He came to give us life. When we become Christians, our spirit is reconnected to God's spirit. Adam lost three significant human needs. Now, I am going to break all the rules that they taught me in preaching class, all the rules in homiletics. And I can just hear Pastor Mark cringing right now, like, what is he going to say? But I'm going to tell you my three points ahead of time. And the reason why they say, don't tell your congregation the three points ahead of time, because people check out, but I know you guys are going to listen to me, so no worries there. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve lost three basic emotional needs that only God can fulfill, yet we can receive again through Christ Jesus. These three needs are acceptance, security, and significance. Every human being has a desire for these three emotional needs, yet God met all three of these needs in the Garden of Eden. They were accepted by God and each other. They were secure. Nothing could harm them, and they had everything they needed. They had significance. They were given dominion over all of creation. When they sinned, they lost their acceptance, their security, and their significance. We keep seeing humanity trying to fulfill these three needs with other sources. Let's look at each of them, their needs, and how it relates to identity in Christ. In your bulletins, I have put, I've given you a little gift here. This is of a a free bookmark that you guys can take home. And there's passages in all of these needs, how we are accepted, significant, and secure in Christ Jesus. And there's about a whole bunch of verses to back this up. But for time's sake this morning, I'm only going to go through two passages per uh, point because if I go through all of them, we'll be here till 2 p.m. and Laura will be really upset with me with the kids. So for time's sake, we'll just go through a few of them. Number one, I am accepted. We all have the we all have a need to be accepted, and the opposite of acceptance, of course, is rejection. Re- all over our society, people are gripped with the fear of rejection. God fully accepts us and loves us. And let's look at some of the passages about how God accepts us. John fifteen fifteen says that. As a disciple, I am a friend in Jesus Christ. You know, we see in Scripture that Jesus poured out his time and efforts into his disciples. He loved them, and he wanted to get to know them. He is our friend and our Savior. I have come to realize that good friends are hard to come by. Those of you know me that know I am an extrovert. I love people. It might appear that I have a lot of good friends, but really, I only have about three or four good friends. Those friends that I can call upon anytime, and that I know that they will pray for me. I want you to think about right now who is a good friend in your life and some of the qualities and characters that makes him a good friend. Jesus is there for us as well. He is there to listen and to advocate with us and the Father on our behalf. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did. He laid down his life for us. You see, Adam had a close friendship with God in the garden. And he, and when he sinned, he no longer could be close to God. But God reached out to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Another way that God accepts us is that he chooses us. And he adopts us as his own children, Ephesians 1, 3 to 8. In our world of rejection, isn't it wonderful to know that we are chosen by God? That he has a plan for our life and wants us on his team? You know, I have gone through my fair share of rejection as well, too. I remember when I was in grade 6. And for all you gym teachers, all you shame on you. Because I remember when I was in grade 6 gym class, you know, the kids are going through puberty and they're really insecure about themselves. And I remember standing there for some strange reason. Gym teachers, back in my day, in the 80s, they would pick two kids to be the captain of the team. And these kids would all, oftentimes be the most popular kids or they'd be the most athletic kids. And I'd be standing there wanting to get picked and they'd be calling names. And of course, I would always be the last one to be picked. You know, I have some issues because I'm 48 years old and I have to share this with you. But, <laughs> but anyways, I think it's amazing that, um, you know what? I'm in children's ministry now, and I will never, ever let the kids pick the teams. I will pick the teams. I will make sure it's fair. I will split you up one and two. And if it's not fair, I will be the one to split them up. Because you let kids do it, feelings always get hurt, and people are always rejected. I like to think of it that this is God, The God is the captain, and he chooses us first. He chooses us to be on his team. That we are never the last one to be picked. The third emotional need that God needs us is that we are secure. I am secure. This is the second emotional need that God promises us. The opposite of security, of course, is what? Insecurity, right. God promises us security in Christ. The world has only false security for us, folks. Let's look at a few passages for some examples of how we are secure in Christ. Philippians 1, 6 says, I am confident that God will complete the good work that He started in me. I absolutely love that passage. And God loves us and He and He Sorry, and God wants us, and we are his masterpiece. He has taken the time to design us. There's a passage in Psalms that says, he knows the hair on our head. He has taken the time to create us. There's a theme of argument amongst our holiness, brothers and sisters, that you can lose your salvation. I have come to the perspective that you cannot lose your salvation. Um, Philippians 1.6 says that God will complete his good work in us. And he is not in the business of starting something and not finishing it. Once we trust in Christ, our Savior, and God adopts us as his own, he's not going to uh, disown us. No one can snatch us from the Father's hand. Philippians 3.20 says, we are citizens of heaven. Our residence isn't here on earth. We can have The security that one day we will be with our Lord Jesus Christ and every tear will be wiped away from our face. Our eternity is with the Lord in heaven and we are secure. The third emotional need that God meets us is that we are significant. Everyone needs to feel special and loved. Our society is looking for significance in all the wrong places. Right now, we actually have young people, youth, who are, have the ability to uh, change their gender, to say, I no longer want to be a boy, but I'm a girl. We actually have kids nowadays who are identifying themselves As animals, they're called furries, and they walk around with dog collars and a leash and little ears and a tail. This is a cry that people have a need to be significant, and they want to feel loved and cared for. And and only Christ can offer us our significance. You know, I often get really frustrated with our society, and my girls keep telling me, Dad, we live in a lost and broken world. And that is so true, and I have to remind myself this over and over again. We live in a lost and broken world. We live in a world that is craving acceptance, significance, and (laughs) security. I want to share some passages with you that show how significant we are and how God sees us. In Ephesians 2.6, it says, I am seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms. God has raised us in Christ. We live by the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. We are seated right beside him spiritually, and he has given us authority. Another way God shows us that we are significant is Ephesians 3:12, which says, "We may approach God with freedom and confidence. And God wants us to have a relationship with. with God wants us to have a relationship with us. and he wants us, He wants us to reach out to him no matter what state we are in. Our perception of God is distorted. Is distorted. Our guilt, shame, and fear often hinder us from approaching God. You know, our perception of God is often linked to our perception of our earthly father, and and this just uh, really makes me have a desire to continually to uh, show my kids how God is a perfect heavenly Father. And I have made so many mistakes in my past. Okay, saints, now that we know in Christ we are accepted, secure, and significant, this is the opposite of what the world uh, views of truth. We need to believe the truth. We are accepted, secure, and significant. Now, we are going to face three different enemies that deflect us from the truth, three different ways That is going to hinder our securities, but we can only follow, that we can, uh, um, they are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's look at the world. Three main tactics that the world tries to divert us from the truth, promising to meet those deep needs that we all have. We were meant to have acceptance, security, and significance. But from the first breath we had coming into this world, we have longed for these three emotional needs. And the world keeps promising us to meet these needs. Yet we need to know that we'll never get them. These needs are only found in Christ Jesus. The world tells us performance plus accomplishments equals significance. Or status plus recognition equals security. Or appearance plus admiration equals acceptance. The world tells us that money equals success. You know, we live in a world with the cliche let's go for the American dream. And you know what, the Canadian dream isn't far off. We raise our kids to go to school, to get good marks, to get that great job, save up for that down payment. And when you buy a house, it's got to have a big two-car garage for each car, right? And then we live in a world that, you know what, you deserve that annual vacation. And I'm not saying that anything of this is wrong, but for us to find happiness in these things can be wrong because our significance and security and acceptance only comes through Christ. We do, we do not need these material things of the world to make us happy. First Peter one three says, "His divine power has given us everything we need to be a, to live a godly life through our knowledge." Of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We have everything we need in Christ. Don't listen to the world's lies about what's important. Trust in God's word with contentment. The second way we're deflected from the truth is by the flesh. Have you ever heard of the expression, they are their own worst enemies? Like a dog going back to its vomit over and over again. People keep mis- making the same mistakes over and over again. The world promises us what we can't fulfill. And our flesh keeps giving us in, in, into these influences. Right now, the porn industry generates more money than ABC, NBC, and CBS altogether. together. The porn industry generates more money than the NFL, NBA, and MLBA altogether. It's estimated in the industry that makes over billions and billions of dollars. The porn industry offers a false sense of acceptance, security, and significance. Even though Satan is in the background, Pulling the strings behind these industries, our flesh desires is distorted sense of love and acceptance and is further drawn by the addictive aspects of our sexual immorality, our body's hormonal response. Do you not think this is a world issue? It's a church issue as well too. There's many men that struggle with a porn addiction as well, too. And as a church, we need to pray for them and walk with them and allow them to experience their significance, security, and acceptance in Christ. The third tactic that diverts us from the truth is the devil. Satan is behind all of these tactics. In one way or another, He is forming a false worldview in different cultures. And he's creating tempting things for us that causes us to give us into the desires of the flesh. It is no wonder why he is referred to as the ruler of the world. What do we do when Satan is living in a world? What do we do when we're living in a world that's ruled by Satan? Satan. James 4 7 gives us the answer. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Please notice that in this passage we have uh, two responsibilities. Number one, we need to submit ourselves to God. Number two, we need to resist the devil. How do we resist the devil and submit to God? For one, we need to have control over our minds. How many of us struggle with thoughts like I am not good enough or I'm so stupid or my life doesn't matter. No one would miss me anyways if I was gone. These thoughts are are thoughts that Satan plants in our mind. Even though Satan cannot read our minds, he can plant these thoughts. Paul gives us instructions on how to win the battle over our minds. It says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we demolish arguments and every pretensions and set itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to to obedience to Christ. And that's what we need to do, folks, is take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought we have, we need to evaluate and see if it lines up with a biblical worldview. God created us, and he loves us in Christ. We are accepted, secure, and significant. Any thoughts that oppose those truths, we need to renounce or reject. And we need to renew our minds with the truth of God. So as we wrap up this message, let's just recap it. We are accepted, significant, and secure. This was Adam and Eve's relationship with God in the garden. And he fulfilled their emotional needs. And they walked with God in the garden Regularly, When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost their acceptance, significance, and security. Their spirit was once connected with God, was now um, separated with Him through sin. God's redeeming plan to give us an abundant life came through Christ Jesus. We then will face three different tactics that will try to erode us from our faith. And God's fulfillment of our needs, they are the the three tactics that will try to erase from our faith is the flesh, the devil, and the world. I want to end with a story that fits this message. I want to talk about the parable of the lost son in Luke chapter 15. And those of you that don't know this parable, in Luke chapter 15, I'll just recap it real quick. It's about a rich man. And, and when Jesus told, told parables, you know, he was referring to a, a spiritual message. And this, this um, in Luke chapter 15, this rich father had two sons. And I, when I tell you the story, I want you to think about the three points that we learned. Ex- how the man, the young boy, was accepted, secure, and significant. And how, when he went out into the world, that he faced three ways that um, deflected him from his faith and made him stumble through the world, the flesh, and Satan. So this man had two sons, and the youngest son wanted his inheritance early. And in those days, if you wanted your inheritance early, you might as well have said, Dad, I, I want you dead. And so the father had really pity on his son, and he gave his son his inheritance early. And what did he do? He goes off to another country and he parties. He spends it on prostitutes, he spends it on alcohol. And you've noticed the two things right now. He wanted to be rich quick, right? That's what the world's offering him. And then he wanted the desires of the flesh. He wanted to drink. He wanted to prostitutes. Those are fleshly things that people struggle with, right? And then a famine came into the country. And then he was in a position where he was really hungry. And he got a job out of all places in a pig farm. And you have to understand, in, 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 that, in those days, that was really tough because he was a Jewish man. And, to, and pigs were unclean. So for him to work with pigs was really a humbling experience. And then the thought occurred to him, "You know what? The servants in my dad's estate is getting fed better than I am right now." And in that moment of repentance, he decides to go home and ask for his dad's forgiveness. And when, his, when, his, when he approached his father, his dad saw him from a distance. And in Luke chapter 15, it says that his dad ran to him. And I want you to understand the significance of his dad running to him. Because in those days, if you were rich and you had wealthy, you weren't running nowhere. People were coming to you. And his dad broke the cultural norms. And he was running to his son. And he embraced his son And he was so overwhelmed to see his dad. And his son said, Father, forgive me. I have have sinned against you. You know, his dad was so happy that he was there. That his dad did three things for him. His dad puts on a robe. And this wasn't just any robe. His dad puts on a robe as the best robe in the house. And it was a sign of restoration. You are my son again. And then his dad gives him a ring. And this ring was really significant because the ring wasn't just an any ring, but the ring was a signet ring. And it meant that he would be able to carry out his dad's business. And then the third thing is, his dad gives him sandals. And this is really significant because in the Jewish culture, the only people that wore sandals in the house were the father and the sons. And the dad was restoring his, his son, saying, you are my son, I love you. And this is what God This is our identity in Christ, is that we are significant, secure, and accepted. And God plans to restore us. And it all started with the cross. I like to call my friends as we partake communion.